It's podcasting time! This is Just Another Jerk Dispatches from Japan, a podcast. A podcast? It's the podcast. It's the one and only podcast in the entire universe. There are no other podcast options, just this one. And I am your host. I am Jonathan Isaacson. Um, please get the podcast, right? Subscribe to it wherever it is you get your podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, probably some other places. I think Pandora works. Rate it. If you got a minute, review it. And most importantly, share it with a friend. So today I am bringing you another episode in the Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History series. Uh, So, of course, I'm still on summer break here, which means I still have a little bit more spare time, look into some stuff, do some translation, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, let's jump into today's story. It is 1995, so relatively recent history. Now, 1995 was a pretty crappy year for Japan, um, especially the early part of the year. I mean, seriously, you know, you get January... Um, January 16th, to be exact, you have the Great Hanshin Earthquake. Now, the Great Hanshin Earthquake is the one that hit near Osaka. Um, Really, it was actually closer to Kobe, um, almost underneath an island called Awajima. But, you know, whatever. I mean, it's in the general Kansai area. Um, Kansai, Hanshin is another name for that area. So, Kobe, Osaka, that general area, right? Now, you might remember um, there was an image of a collapsed elevated expressway. You know, I was a teenager at the, in the U.S. at the time this all happened. Um, and this was an image that I certainly remember. Even though I really, at this point, 1995, I'm not interested. I'm not kind of focused on anything Japan at this point. But it was a major disaster. And that image, that collapsed freeway, it's it's an image I remember from my from my teenage years. You know, it was a big deal. Something like six thousand more, or probably more people than that, died in this earthquake. So, like I say, major disaster. And then fast forward a couple months uh, to March, March twentieth to be exact. The Aum Doomsday Cult terrorist group um, they used sarin to attack the Tokyo subway system. And 14 people died in that attack. Thousands more suffered some ill health effects, some sort of injuries. Um, A lot of people had vision problems, things like that. And the Aum group, they're probably worth their own episode at some point. Um, Though I'm sure a lot of other people who talk about things Japan have covered them already because they are some of the most visible modern crazies in Japan. Um, And they're not today's focus, but they certainly play a very important supporting role in today's story. So, yeah, so anyway, early 1995, it was a pretty tough time for Japan, just generally speaking. And I'm sure a lot of great stuff probably happened in 95, but... I mean, looking at Wikipedia for 95 doesn't really actually paint that great of a picture for the world. I mean, 95, uh, that's when Windows 95 was released. I mean, that, eh, you know, it's Windows 95. How, what can we say about that? 
Um, Amazon. Amazon began service in 1995. I mean, sure, on Amazon you can buy just about anything that has ever been produced and is really, really super convenient, but it does kill local businesses and it does put money into Jeff Bezos's pocket. So at best, it's a wash. Um, at worst, you're sponsoring, you know, a, what, a hundred billionaire. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, 95, maybe not the greatest year. And as I said, Japan in particular had a couple of just absolutely horrific events in, you know, very early part of 1995. So I imagine that a lot of people were probably a bit on edge in early 1995 in Japan. And, you know, on top of all this, the 90s, just in general, the decade, in Japan, this is known as a lost decade. Um, right, so the 1970, late 70s into the 80s, Japan is riding high. You know, this is that's the era when everyone's worried Japan's going to take over the world economically. And that all burst in the late 80s, early 90s, and you get this lost decade of the 90s. And the economy stagnated in a, just this horrible way. Right? Stagflation was this huge problem. You know, stagflation, you know, those really swole male deer. Oh, wait, no, that's 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 not right. That's that's just buff deer. Um, no, stagflation, stagnation, inflation. There we go. Anyway, stagflation, that was a problem in Japan in the 1990s. And that actually, the 90s, this lost decade, it does play something of a supporting role in today's story. So, here we are six minutes in. What's our story? Well, if you've read the title of the episode, you know it is a hijacking. So, let's talk about that story. June 21st, 1995. A flight, uh, ANA 857, left from Tokyo's Haneda Airport, bound for Hakodate, a city on the southern tip of the northern island of Hokkaido. Hakodate is a city that I know very well. I lived in Hakodate for about three years. My wife is from there. Um, I've been, so we go back to... Every, well, we have in the last couple of years, corona, but we go back there every year if there's not a coronavirus pandemic going on. And so anyway, my wife, she would have been in Hakodate the time all this was happening. But, you know, this isn't about me. It's about our hijacker. So this flight left Tokyo late in the morning, and the 747 jumbo jet was carrying 365 passengers and crew. And... As it was flying over Yamagata, no, Yamagata Prefecture, if you don't know, look it up, you know, on a map, whatever. A single middle-aged man goes and he hijacks the plane. Now, he has a couple of items that are suspicious. One is a package with what appear to be plastic explosives. And the other really sus item is an insulated shopping bag with a plastic pouch filled with a clear liquid that he claims is sarin. And he's also carrying a screwdriver, and he has threatened to puncture the pouch and let the liquid sarin loose 
in the plane's cabin. And now here is where the Alm Doomsday cult plays a major supporting role in our story. So, in the attack on the Tokyo subway system, members of the cult had plastic pouches full of sarin liquid, right? It wasn't, it wasn't sarin gas, it was a liquid, liquefied sarin. And they had that, those pouches wrapped up in newspaper. And they had umbrellas with sharpened tips. And at a designated time, they placed these newspaper-covered pouches on the ground and punctured them with the umbrellas, with the umbrella tips, which released the liquid, which then released sarin aerosol, sarin gas. I don't, I'm not exactly sure how the mechanism behind how the liquid sarin becomes aerosolized, becomes, becomes a gas. So I don't know the evaporation point, how, you, how easily it aerosolized, all of that. Obviously, the effect, the, the, the method is effective enough. Um, I mean, effective is a horrible word to use here for a deadly, deadly gas, uh, deadly substance. But it was, in this context, in from the point of view of the Alm cultists, it was effective. Um, so they apparently had, had thought about using an aerosolized version of sarin, but chose to use the liquefied version probably for ease. I, I don't know exactly, but anyway, like I say, it was for the purposes of the cult was good enough, apparently. Um, again, like they killed 14 people, injured or adversely affected thousands more using liquid sarin in a pouch and puncturing it. And remember, this hijacker on our airplane that we're talking about, he was doing this only a few months after the Tokyo subway attack. So a pouch with liquid that might be sarin and a screwdriver to puncture it, I mean, yeah, you're going to get people's attention. And, I mean, geez, I mean, airport security was obviously a bit lax in 1995. Um, I mean, I do think it's gone a little too far in the other direction, a little overzealous. Um, I understand why, but... Eh, whatever. Um, but I mean, looking at photos of the screwdriver this guy had, this wasn't a small screwdriver. It was a, you know, it wasn't a gi ginormous screwdriver, but, it, you know, in the range of, uh, of standard screwdrivers, it's on the big end of that, you know. So he managed to walk onto an airplane with a good sized screwdriver. And yeah, anyway, so the hijackers' demands weren't terribly clear. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of, you know, like, what did he want? It wasn't clear. He wanted to land the plane in Hakodate, have it refueled, and returned to Tokyo. And as far as I've been able to read and, and, and watch and understand, that was kind of it. Like I said, there was no real purpose, no real clear objective to why he was hijacking the plane, right? Not like in previous Japanese airplane hijacks. Um, the most famous of the Japanese airplane hijack incidents was the Yodo incident, which I have mentioned um, before when I talked about the Asama Lodge uh, hostage situation, right? The Yodo incident was the one where the leftists hijacked an airplane demanded to be taken to North Korea and, you know, ended up there and, you know, whatever. So that was the, that, and there are other hijacks in, you know, the 
subsequent years were also primarily uh, left ra- radical leftists and with very clear leftist um, purposes for their for their hijacks. But this case seemed different. The intentions weren't entirely clear. Why was this man hijacking the plane? It seemed like he might be connected to the Aum cult, but that was kind of it. Now, aboard the plane, the hijacker had the flight attendants cover all the passengers' mouths and eyes with packing tape. So they couldn't see, obviously. That was the idea. And he demanded that the plane be returned to Tokyo. But the airport officials in Hakodate told him that there were some mechanical problems that prevented them from refueling immediately. And they needed to take care of these issues before they could comply with his demands. Of course, this was a big, fat lie. The airport officials, working with police, obviously, at this, you know, I, that's kind of the first thing you would do, they were just stalling for time. There was no problem with the airplane. Everything was in working order. They just didn't want to send it back into the air. They were trying to figure out what's the deal, what's going on. And at this point, the officials at the airport they weren't sure how many hijackers there were. They didn't know if it was just, you know, it was a single hijacker or multiple hijackers. They didn't know were they armed with anything besides, you know, their plastic explosives and sarin. You know, was there was there a handgun? It wasn't clear to the police yet, and they wanted to figure it out. And luckily, there was a passenger aboard who was able to give the police a lot of important information. Now, there is a Japanese pop singer, um, kind of, I don't, I, for lack, I just, we'll just call her pop singer. It's not J-pop, but for lack of a better term, there's, say there's a pop singer named Kato Tokiko. And Kato was, she was going with her band and her manager to Hokkaido for a concert. And her guitarist, um, a man named Tsuge Nobutaka, he was able to provide the police with a lot of really important, useful information. So, as the passengers sat on the airplane for hours, because, yes, the incident lasted for more than half a day, but as they were sitting there on the plane, the tape that was covering their mouths and their eyes, it was beginning to come loose, right? People were on a plane, they were getting sweaty, body oil, just, you know, generally you sit up for a long time in one spot, you know, your face gets oily. Tape's not going to stick to that very well. So the tape was being to, you know, not fall off entirely, but becoming loose so they could kind of see down below. It was, so from, from what it sounds like, at least for Tsuge, the tape was kind of stuck on his eye, up on his eyebrows, but he could see down below so he could see people's feet, basically. And Tsuge and the others in the band, because um, Kato Tokyo, she her, herself, she noticed this. They noticed that every time the hijackers, or like I said, at this point they don't know for sure, one of the hijackers, every time a hijacker walked by, Tsuge was able to see that it was always the same pair of shoes. And apparently, according to Kato Tokyo, they were very new white shoes. So, Pretty, you know, brand almost brand new, so kind of sticks out. And so they were pretty certain 
there was only one hijacker. Now, Tsuge, the Tsuge um, Nobutaka, he also knew that Kato Tokiko's manager, who was sitting across the aisle from him, had a mobile phone. And this was 1995, remember, so mobile phones, they're fairly rare. I mean, we're not in, we're no longer in the, you know, the brick large enough to defend yourself from a Puma type phones. We're out of that, you know, you can't whack a, a, a medium-sized predator with, with, with a phone and with a brick of a phone and knock it out. We're not in that era anymore. Um, you know, we're definitely into the, you know, fitted into your pocket era by 1995. But phones were still rare enough that of the band, Kato's manager, right? She's, she's the one in charge of contacting concert halls, TV, radio, whatever. She was the only one in the group who had a, had a mobile phone. So she slipped it to Tsuge, the guitarist, wrapped in a, in a newspaper. And he was able to slip into a lavatory on the plane. And he called the police and provided them with information. And the police, but from this information and from their observations, they realized there was probably only one hijacker. And after a while, you know, the, at first they presumed he had some connections with Aum, right? Because of the Sarin, you know, the, the Sarin and, and the way he was doing things. They thought, okay, maybe he's connected to Aum, but they began running records of all the passengers and crew on the plane, and they realized that no one on the plane was a known member of Aum, because the police had a list of everyone who was known to be in the cult. And no one on the plane's name matched anything on the list. And of course, this is not to say that it was impossible that he was a member, just much more unlikely. And they were also to, you know, they were able to figure out that based on his actions, he was probably not in possession of any gun of any sort. And so the police began devising a way to safely bring the situation to a close. The Hokkaido Prefectural Police, working with the special assault team, um, it's the Japanese equivalent of a SWAT team, they devised a way to get onto the airplane to neutralize the hijacker. And the media did play an important role in this. Now somehow, I don't know exactly, but... In 747, 1995, somehow he was able to get information that was being reported, um, right? So maybe the, the, the t there were TVs on the airplane that, you know, he was able to, once they're on the ground, could get, you know, the, the TV signals or whatever, but whatever. However it was, they knew that he was able to get information about what was being reported on radio and TV. So... The radio stations, the TV, sorry, not the radio stations, the TV stations, right? They all agreed not to show the rear of the airplane in, in any of their broadcasts once the situation, like once all the details were known, right? They were either running live images of a very close crop of the cockpit only, or they were running video that had been filmed earlier when the plane had touched down in Hakodate. Live images of the rear of the plane were not being broadcast. Now, let's just very briefly, like a little sidebar here, talk about the timeline. So the plane was hijacked at about 11.45 in the morning. And it would have landed in Hakodate 45 minutes, like an hour or less later 
in Hakodate. So that's when it gets to Hakodate, before 1 p.m. And then the plane just sat on the tarmac for hours, right? Literally mo- all the afternoon, all evening, well into the night. It wasn't around 10 p.m. until the decision was made about what to do. And that decision was to enter the airplane. So the police, they worked with the maintenance crew at the airport. They were looking at another 747 and a hangar, trying to figure out the best way to get into the airplane. And they devised a plan to enter the main cabin from three locations. The decision was made at 10 p.m., but getting permission to use the assault team took some time because the assault team up to this point had been focused primarily, not primarily, solely on international terrorist groups, international terrorist threats. They had never been deployed for domestic cases. Finally, though, their deployment was approved and the plan was put into motion. The police approached the plane from the rear, which is, and this is why, you know, the, the, the uh, TV stations weren't showing the rear of the airplane. The police, they approached the, the plane from the rear in the dead of night. Complete pitch black situation. No lights at all. And all of this, you know, was to prevent the hijacker from knowing what was going on. The police erected some ladders by the three doors that they would be using. Now, the Hokkaido police officers, and these the, the, the ones who were chosen to go in, were all officers who were trained in um, hostage situations, right? Of course, though, the hostage situations they were trained to deal with were office buildings, apartment buildings, places where it was a lot easier to get in and out of than an airplane. But, so that the, anyway, the Hokkaido police officers, they dressed in coveralls of the airplane maintenance crew, and they climbed the ladders. It looks like three at each door, so a total of nine um, officers. Of course, on the ground, lots more support. But the three, there were three at each door who were going to go into the airplane. And in unison, and from word, word from people inside the airplane, it was truly in unison. Like one instant, boom, three doors open, nine cops rush in. In unison, these three groups of cops opened the doors and rushed the hijacker. Again, they think they're pretty sure no guns, so probably safe. He was sitting in the main cabin of the plane, and he tried to run, but was very, very quickly cornered. And apparently he took a swing at one of the cops with his screwdriver, but he ended up getting smacked in the head himself. And the images of him getting let off the plane, his shirt's all bloody. Got a, looks like probably a, a, a an airplane towel, uh, not towel, a blanket wrapped around his head. Tied, tied, tied looks to be one of the, uh, the flight attendants, one of her, one of the scarves of the flight attendant, used as a, a tie to keep the the blanket on his head from all the blood. But whatever. Um, so yeah, he got smacked in the head, and the cops very quickly fell on him, pinned him, took away his screwdriver, his plastic explosives, and a sarin. And as you might have guessed by this point, the plastic explosives, just some modeling clay with fake fuses, the liquid sarin in a pouch, water. Just plain water. His most dangerous weapon by far was his screwdriver. At around 4 a.m., so remember, 
it, this is all around started around noon. By 4 a.m., finally, all 365 aboard were able to exit the plane uninjured. Okay, okay well, they weren't. 364 were able to get off the plane, mostly. Like, say, the hijacker, he was one of them. He was let off in handcuffs, the bloody shirt. Um, the other 364 were unhurt, largely unhurt. Um, it sounds like one person needed minor treatment, being to, you know, like, gotten. You know, small stabbing. I don't know exactly. I couldn't find the exact details, but someone got poked with a screwdriver. It looks like it sounds like um, six others required minor treatment at Hakodate hospitals um, due to stress from the ordeal. But that was it. Nothing physically. No major injuries. Um, maybe some PTSD. I'm going to guess probably some PTSD for some people. But um, as far as physical injuries. Pretty minimal. So, who was the hijacker? What did he really want? And it turns out to be a really rather quotidian story. He wasn't some ideologue. He wasn't a member of the far left as the earlier hijackers in Japan had been. He wasn't a member of the doomsday cult, right? Attempting to hasten the end of the world or anything. He was just a banker. A lonely 53-year-old banker. According to reports, he was a pretty high-level guy at a bank in Tokyo, but he was a bit unstable. Um, apparently, he had kind of the worst temper in his office, and according to um, according to the Hokkaido Shimbun, which is the Hokkaido newspaper uh, reporter Aihara Hideki, um, who so Aihara he reported on the story for years after the incident, and according to Aihara, the hijacker found himself to be useless in the 1990s. The word that I had to use to describe the hijacker was, uh, uh, was it? Uh, kai gurushi, which has two very closely related meanings. One of those meanings is keeping a domestic animal, so think farm animals here, keeping a domestic animal Beyond its usefulness. So like an old horse that can't pull the plow anymore or whatever. And the other meaning of, of Kai Gurushi. Uh, it's Kai Guroshi. Right? Guroshi. Yeah, Sorry, I, I mis, mis, misspoke earlier. Kai Guroshi. Is keeping a person on the payroll without utilizing their skills. So the hijacker, 53, right? 53 years old. He had come up in the banking business in the 1970s and 1980s, right? That's Japan's post-war boom. But by the 1990s, things were a lot more bleak. And by all accounts, the hijacker was also really a loner. And so Aihara, the reporter, his thought is that the hijacker was using the trappings of the Alm attack to gain notoriety and to kind of go out as some sort of weird anti-hero unlike Asahara Shoko, who was the leader and founder of Aum, who had been arrested not long after the Tokyo subway attacks. Right? Asahara had yet to go to trial in, at the time of the hijacking, but my guess is that most people thought he was, you know, he was in jail for good, probably going to be sentenced to death, I think most people probably expected. Um, and so, right, the, 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 this I heart of the reporter... His thought is that our hijacker 
wanted to be some weird anti-hero and not kind of go out like Asahara Shoko, the leader of Aum. So, yeah, I'd say our hijacker, who I have decided not to name. It's easy to find his name if you want to. He was a loner who was pretty successful in business, just not in social circles. And he was extremely alienated by everything around him, right? And he decided to take it out in a very strange, strange way. He would later be found guilty. I mean, duh. Um, he was originally sentenced to eight years plus 53 million uh, yen in damages. The, his sentence would later be extended to 10 years. Um, but yeah, so that he's at this point, I presume he's out. But I, I didn't look into it. I don't, I'm going to leave, leave that part alone. For its part, the government was criticized for not doing more to dismantle the doomsday cult Elm in the immediate aftermath of the Tokyo uh, subway sarin attacks. But in this case, I'm not sure what difference that would have made. I mean, I guess, you know, had Elm been dismantled immediately, there might have been less likelihood that people would have mistaken our dude here, our, our hijacker as a possible member. But, you know, seeing as the guy wasn't actually a member, he was just jacking their style um, to, you know, not a, realize that was not an intent. That, that's not an intentional pun. He was jacking their style. Um, he could have done the same thing. You know, not he wasn't a member of the cult. Didn't matter if the cult was existing or not. And people would have thought, you know, he maybe he was a member of, the, of a sleeper cell or something or a sympathizer demanding that, you know, the police release Asahara or something, right? It seems like a separate issue to me. Like I say, I really, at some point, I should talk about Alm. Like I said, they don't exist by that name anymore, but the group does more or less continue to operate um, under the name Aleph. Uh, another group split off in 2007, known as Hikari no Wa. Um, Aleph is still under police surveillance as a terrorist, uh, known terrorist group. Um, basically, they consider them to be Aum, just with a different name. Hikari no Wa, they were removed from police surveillance, at least from the high-risk group of surveillance in 2017. Um, apparently, they kind of seem to be more, more focused on kind of the personal improvement, kind of new age kind of BS sort of thing. Um, I mean, there are plenty of new age groups that are, you know, for all intents and purposes, cults, but you know, whatever. Like I said, um, definitely a topic worth talking about at some point, And I'll put that on my list of things to maybe talk about someday when I get a chance. So yeah, um, untreated, undertreated mental health problems, major issue here in Japan. You know, combining that with the economic issues of the 90s, you know, the crappy start to 1995 in Japan, it all led to a hijacking, right? One that thankfully ended with no deaths, no major injuries, at least no physical injuries. And so, like I say, I'm not a huge fan of police in a lot of situations. I do have to say they did a really excellent job in this case, right? Sure, the passengers weren't in any real danger of a sarin attack, but the police did a good job preparing for the worst-case scenarios. And one last, completely unrelated point. 
It's kind of a cool little technology point. The TV stations were able to deploy the latest technology for this story. They had a camera that was, it was still in development. It was a, a, a video camera that was able to record in really low light. Right? There's some pretty cool footage of the police preparing the ladders for entry into the plane. And if you look at it not knowing anything, it looks entirely pedestrian. Right? Nothing interesting. Just a bunch of cops and some ladders. Until you remember that it's three in the morning. It's pitch black. And it looks like early evening. And that's kind of pretty cool, actually. Um, so, yeah, that is where we will leave the story of the hijacking of ANA Flight 857. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. The podcast is available on most major platforms. I know it's on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, other places. If it's not on your favorite platform, let me know, and I will look into getting it on that platform as well. You can find the Twitter for the podcast, at JustAnotherCast. You can email the show, JustAnotherJerkPodcast at gmail.com. Be the first person to send me fan mail. Woo! Uh, You can also find all this information on the website, which is tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. That's all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.